Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, free to listeners and with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy our podcast, all we ask is that wherever you listen, kindly follow or subscribe and leave a review. Please note that Season 2 contains some limited descriptions of physical violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. This podcast from the True Suspense Files involves two different crimes committed in different years, involving different people. Their only direct connection, if there is one, is that the person responsible for the second crime may have gotten at least part of the idea from the first crime, taking a lesson, the wrong lesson, as you'll see, from it. Though otherwise unconnected, there are major features of the two crimes that are identical. Both were crimes that pitted man against woman. Both took place in and around Charlottesville, site of the University of Virginia. Each involved, in its own way, the unlikeliest of perpetrators with no prior criminal record. And both involved the chemical chloroform and its properties. Some of the surrounding elements seem like the stuff of pulp fiction. Tumultuous relationships, in one case leading to strange happenings in an abandoned house, in the other a visit from what appeared to be a vampire. But this podcast is not fiction, and the crimes involved are very serious ones. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and this True Suspense podcast is... The Chloroform Capers. Here is part one, an abduction. The following information is based on the sworn testimony of Chelsea Steiniger, supplemented by police reports, documented text message exchanges, and sworn testimony of others. December 12, 2012, Charlottesville, Virginia. Chelsea Steiniger, age 20, was visiting her boyfriend, Michael Mills, at his residence on Grady Avenue. Michael lived in housing provided by the Region 10 Community Services Board, a provider for people needing help with mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, and or developmental disabilities. He was down on his luck but cared a lot about Chelsea. She herself was not exactly well off. Chelsea worked as a waitress at a Red Robin Burger restaurant. She didn't have her own home, but managed to find places to stay, including at her mother's. She and her mom often argued, so that was usually not her first choice. Chelsea's husband was incarcerated. It was getting late on that December 12, and Chelsea asked Michael if she could spend the night. 
Michael reminded her of the rules. He was not permitted to have overnight guests, and she already was there past the time visitors were supposed to have left. Chelsea begged, but Michael held firm. At approximately 11.30 p.m., she headed out and started walking toward her mother's home. Grady Avenue, where Michael lived, was not exactly the best neighborhood, but it was fairly central in Charlottesville and not far away from the university. Pantops, the area where her mother lived, was at least two and a half miles away at the eastern outskirts of town. Pantops was once owned by Thomas Jefferson and his family. In more recent years, it has become, in effect, a small suburb made up of mostly condos and townhouses, with Pantops Mountain towering over it. U.S. Route 250, a major artery in the Charlottesville area, runs right past it. Chelsea was not happy as she walked in the chill wind. Temperatures hovered around the freezing mark. She and Michael texted back and forth as she continued on her way. At one point, Chelsea asked if she could come back to his place if she and her mother got into a fight. Text records show that it was 11.50 p.m. when Michael texted back, I can't do that, I'm sorry. In the texting, there was also discussion of the need for Chelsea to find her own apartment. As Chelsea continued her uncomfortable walk, she noticed a white van that passed her at least a couple of times. She approached the parking lot of a Lucky 7 convenience store on Market Street downtown. At that point, the door of the van opened, and a man inside called out, It's cold outside. Do you need a ride? Chelsea hesitated, but she was freezing, and the man seemed friendly enough. Besides, there was a police station practically across the street, so she assumed his intentions must have been good enough. Chelsea hopped in. As she did, she banged out a text to Michael. Can't type. Too cold. Some dude is giving me a ride. The timestamp on the text was 12.10 a.m. As they headed up towards her mother's Pantops condo, the driver began to ask Chelsea questions that made her very uncomfortable. At one point, he slipped his hand over her thigh, but she pulled away in her seat. Chelsea texted Michael at 12.18 a.m., He tried to get in my pants. Chelsea began to feel relieved as they approached her mom's street. But that relief was short-lived. At 12.21 a.m., she texted her boyfriend again. Just pulled up. He won't let me out of the car. Chelsea was filled with fear as the van pulled away with her still in it. She texted Michael one minute later. In car just past Pantops, 
I don't know where we going, baby. I don't know was abbreviated IDK. Chelsea recalls screaming at the driver, Where are you taking me and what the fuck are you doing? Back at Grady Avenue, the texts had become very concerning to Michael. But suddenly, the content took on a far more disturbing tone. At 12.23 a.m., he received a puzzling new text from Chelsea's number. She doesn't have her phone, it read. The series of texts over the next ten minutes became increasingly frightening to Michael. 12.27 a.m. She's so sexy when she's passed out. 12.28 She was a fighter, I'll give her that much. And then 12.36 I'll let her wake before I let her talk to you. Michael knew he needed more information. At 12.37 a.m. he texted back, What did you do? A minute later, having had no response, Michael texted, Where are you taking her? A grim reply soon followed. She's in my house. She said she was cold, so Ima warm her up. Ima was spelled with I-M-M in caps and the A in lowercase. Michael then texted a warning to the abductor that he was about to call the police, but he didn't know whom Chelsea was with, what kind of car was involved, or where she might be. The police would have nothing to go on. So Michael waited a bit. Meanwhile, Chelsea felt groggy and confused as she awakened on the floor of what appeared to be an empty house. Suddenly she remembered the driver taking a wet bandana in his hands and forcing it over her face. She recalled a scent of chemicals as she began to struggle, but within seconds she felt herself succumbing. Chelsea realized she must have passed out. As she came to on the cold floor, she heard the clicking sound she associated with her own phone and noticed through the one eye that was half opened that her abductor had her phone and was texting on it. Piecing together the timing later, it appears that these were some of the texts taunting Chelsea's boyfriend, Michael. As she lay there, Chelsea pretended to still be unconscious as she pondered what to do next. Minutes later, she saw a potential opportunity. Her abductor had put down the phone, and she heard him leave the room, walk downstairs, and out to his van. Chelsea grabbed her phone and tried to collect her wits. She texted Michael at 12.49. Only one word. Baby. In the event, Chelsea walked cautiously to another room, then back to the room where she had awakened and managed to find a balcony. Though she was on the second story of the house, she saw no other choice. She leaped off and darted into a densely wooded area. 
she saw that Michael was trying to call. At 12.51, she texted, I can't answer. He'll find me. Moments later, she took a chance and called Michael. Speaking in a whisper, she explained that she was hiding in the woods and needed to be very careful. Michael told her to hang up and call the police. At around 1 a.m., Michael himself contacted the police. Chelsea herself did not. She was too concerned with remaining hidden, and besides, she had witnessed bad experiences her husband had had with police and figured they would not take her seriously. Meanwhile, she had stopped and sat still when she suddenly heard the van door closing and re-entering the house. Her abductor would soon discover that Chelsea had disappeared. Where she crouched from behind a tree, Chelsea could still see what she now realized was the abandoned house from which she'd just escaped. An instant later, she noticed that her abductor himself had walked out onto the balcony and seemed to be gazing around to try to spot her. Chelsea struggled not to make the slightest noise. The minutes that passed by as he stood on the balcony looking into the woods seemed like hours to her. As it happened, the abductor remained on the balcony for what turned out to be approximately 10 to 15 minutes. At that point, he left the balcony and moved back into the house. Chelsea could hear him on the stairs and then could faintly see him walk out to his van and get in. She heard the engine start up. And then, at last, Chelsea felt enormous relief when she saw the van drive off and heard the noise of the engine fade away as her abductor had apparently given up. At that point, Chelsea picked up the phone to call Michael, but there was one problem. The battery, which had been running very low, was now dead. Chelsea panicked slightly and began to try to figure out where she was. Walking back toward the house, she noted the address and walked out toward a larger road. Soon she recognized generally where she was. The larger road was the US 250 bypass, but about two miles from her mother's house. She oriented herself and started again on a long walk in the cold. Meanwhile, the Charlottesville Police Emergency Communications Center, or ECC, was repeatedly trying to call Chelsea, but with her phone dead, they could only leave voicemail. A police unit was sent to Michael's home to wait for potential contact. After a very long walk, Chelsea arrived at her mom's Pantops condo, frozen, exhausted, and still a bit dazed. She plugged in her phone to charge the battery. After settling in and warming up, she called Michael from the home phone. Michael answered and was very relieved to hear Chelsea was safe. He then handed the phone to an officer who ascertained Chelsea's whereabouts 
and told her police would soon be there to get details of the abduction. When detectives arrived, Chelsea recounted her nightmare of an evening. She did her best to describe the white van and her abductor. Chelsea also described the chemical used to subdue her, which both she and police concluded was likely chloroform. To get some expert information on chloroform, I reached out to an emergency room physician who I've often found to be a great resource, Dr. Paul Baker. Dr. Baker has decades of experience in emergency medicine, including in toxicology. He also happens to be a graduate of the University of Virginia, so he spent years in Charlottesville. Here is part of my interview with him. Well, thank you for joining me, Dr. Baker. Um, and let me just start out with sort of the general question. What is chloroform? How would you describe it? Well, chloroform is a chemical compound, uh, technically known as trichloromethane uh, at room temperature. It is a uh, clear, colorless liquid. Uh, it is volatile, meaning in, uh, it converts to gaseous form fairly easily, so it has a fairly strong odor. Uh, many people actually describe the odor as somewhat uh, pleasant smelling. Okay. Well, what about its um, medical use? Because of its volatility, chloroform is readily absorbed into the body through the respiratory tract. Chloroform can cause you to feel lethargic initially, disoriented, and with increasing doses, you may lose consciousness or feel no pain or sensation. Hence, it can be used as an anesthetic in medicine. Historically, it was widely used in the 1800s. Um, this started with a dental extraction uh, and became very popular after that. In fact, Queen Victoria delivered two of her children using chloroform anesthesia. Uh, it was also widely used in the American Civil War. Uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, amputations were not uh, conducted without anesthesia. In fact, 90-95% of the procedures done were done using either ether or chloroform. Uh, as an anesthetic. Chloroform was frequently used for surgical procedures well into the 20th century. So I gather it's not used for surgery anymore. Why not? Actually, because it ended up killing people in many cases. Uh, chloroform can cause respiratory failure, fatal cardiac arrhythmias, especially at the higher doses. Um, it's also a very difficult anesthetic to administer safely because it's tough to get the dose just right so that it renders a person unconscious uh, without affecting other vital functions. So does it have any legal use these days? Certainly. Uh, chloroform is a solvent, meaning it helps other substances dissolve. Uh, it's widely used in chemical manufacturing, uh, production of things like floor polish, adhesives, even pesticides. So is it readily available to the general public? For sure. You can purchase uh, chloroform on the internet without any restrictions. In fact, you can even make it at home. There are formulas on the internet uh, for home manufacture, although I don't recommend that because chloroform is quite dangerous. We'll be hearing more from Dr. Baker 
later in the podcast. Meanwhile, I'll be describing the hunt for the man in the white van and twists and turns in the aftermath of it in an upcoming episode. In the next installment, however, will be a look at a case in Charlottesville eight years earlier that I theorize led to the idea of using chloroform in the 2012 crime. That's coming in part two, Visit from a Vampire. The Chloroform Capers is a production of True Suspense Podcasts, written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions. <laughs>